the scriptures from John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. Would you follow along as I read, please? There's a heading for this called the authority of the Son. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and, belive, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he, will, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Uh, the last, last two weeks on uh, U.S. Uh, national television, um, they have shown uh, victims of Larry Nasser uh, at his trial giving victim impact statements. And uh, one of those was uh, quite lengthy, maybe 45 minutes and uh, I want to read part of that today. Um, a young woman uh, sexually abused and molested and one of 175 women. And uh, she uh, read this statement and I thought uh, a beautiful presentation of the gospel. Um, and I'm going to read maybe five minutes of it. Um, if you have not followed the story, uh, Larry Nasser was the doctor for the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team and a professor at Michigan State University and uh, over the years sexually molested a lot of the young girls who came in to see him uh, from a very young age. I know some of them were six years old and some of them were up to teenagers and uh, parents did not believe and uh, those, who he re those who were reported to did not believe that there was sexual abuse going on, but there was. And uh, now at least 175 women have come forward. Um, he has been sentenced to um, a huge amount of time. I think he got 60 years for child pornography on his laptop and 175 years for sexual molestation. And there are still more lawsuits to go. 
and civil lawsuits as well. But uh, this comes from Rachel Den Hollander. She is a young woman, looks like she's in her 30s. And this was what she read at the victim impact uh, statements. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others, and the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings... You brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God loving, God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen what you have seen this courtroom today if the bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you be thrown into a lake than for than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds the bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of god's wrath An eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis, where he says, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just, unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight, What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. This means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. This is why I pity you. Because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you've shut yourself off from everything truly beautiful, and good in this world 
that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment. And I pity you for it. You could, have have, you could have had everything you pretended to be. Every woman who stood up here truly loved you as an innocent child. Real, genuine love for you. And it did not satisfy. I have experienced the soul-satisfying joy of a marriage built on sacrificial love and safety and tenderness and care. I have experienced true intimacy in its deepest joys. And it is beautiful and sacred and glorious. And that is a joy you have cut yourself off from ever experiencing. And I pity you for it. I have been there for young gymnasts, helped them transform from awkward little girls to graceful, beautiful, confident athletes, and taken joy in their success because I wanted what was best for them. This is a joy you have cut yourself off from forever because your desire to help was nothing more than a facade for your desire to harm. I have, leap, I have lived the deep satisfaction of wrapping my small children in my arms, making them feel safe and secure because I was safe. This is a rich joy beyond what I can express. And you have cut yourself off from it because you were not safe. And I pity you for it. In losing the ability to call evil what it is without mitigation, without minimization, you have lost the ability to define and enjoy love and goodness. You have fashioned for yourself a prison that is far, far worse than any I could ever put you in, and I pity you for that. And it goes on. Uh, beautiful, well-spoken, put-together words in the midst of a very evil time done by an evil man, and the fallout uh, is going to continue because others were complicit. He could not have done this without other people letting him do it. Um, but there is forgiveness and there is grace only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's part of what's going on in the passage uh, before you today. There is hope in Jesus Christ. If you turn with me to John chapter 5 or the passages in your bulletin for your convenience, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. And uh, the reason why they're called synoptic, that word synoptic from uh, Greek preposition soon means together with an optic for seeing, means they see things the same way, synoptic. And uh, so they have similar, they, they include similar stories in a similar format. And I think John reads Matthew, Mark, and Luke before he writes his gospel. And so when he writes his gospel, he writes it differently. And he hardly includes much of what they had, except, of course, you have to include the crucifixion. You have to include the resurrection. Those are keys. So uh, other than uh, some of that basic structure, John gives us different stories uh, to, to try and round out our view of Jesus and what he is all about. And especially, he, he shows us some intimate pictures of Jesus, one-on-one -on -one pictures with Jesus, and so I'm calling uh, this series One-on-One -on -one with Jesus, um, what you can expect when you were to meet Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. And one of, the, one of the things that's different between uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does a lot of things in Galilee. 
the northern part of Israel. And in John, there's hardly anything that takes place in Galilee. Most of the action takes place in Jerusalem or around Judea. He wants us to see those things. And uh, in the Gospel of Mark, one of the first miracles is he tells us about a man who is paralyzed and his friends want to bring the man to Jesus and so they bring him but they can't get close to Jesus because of the crowd. And so what they do is they tear a hole in the roof where Jesus is and they lower the man down through the hole before Jesus. And Jesus sees the man lying there paralyzed and Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And I think at that and I go, Jesus, that's not why we brought him. <laughs> He's laying there paralyzed. Don't you see that? <laughs> the crazy thing is, is that Jesus did the best thing that could ever happen for that man. <laughs> Your sins are forgiven. Wonderful. This guy's going to heaven. His sins have just been washed away. Jesus has done that. Striking. Unbelievable but you still think, hey, the guy's paralyzed. And so Jesus says this. He goes, in order for you to know that the Son of Man can forgive sins, he says to the man, take up your bed and walk. And the man picks up his bed and he walks and goes home. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. In order for you to see that, he heals that man. Um, one of the early days in Galilee, Jesus went into a synagogue. I think maybe the, same, the synagogue that's there in Capernaum. And if you visit Capernaum today, you can actually walk on the outline of that uh, synagogue that was built in first century, uh, in the first century. Uh, be it's beautiful, beautiful place to go. And he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's their big day. And Jesus goes into the synagogue and he sees a man who is there with a withered hand. And he says to the man, stand up in the middle of the room. And the man stands up in the middle of the room and Jesus says, is it good for me to heal on the Sabbath day? Nobody says anything. But Jesus says, you're healed. And immediately the man's arm was healed and uh, he went out unbelievable. But of course they were mad. That's not the, that's not the purpose of church, Jesus. <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that on a Sabbath day. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? They were offended that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. Well, let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> Not only did he offend the north, when he came to Jerusalem, he did the exact same thing. And so he went, to the Jeru went, went into Jerusalem, he went to the pool that's by the sheep gate or by the sheep market, and there was a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. And it was the Sabbath day. And Jesus tells that man, take up your bed and walk. And the man picks up his bed and he walks on the Sabbath. So now they're mad in Jerusalem. <laughs> he heals on the Sabbath in Galilee. Now he heals on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. Oh, now they're mad at him in Jerusalem. He finds the man a little later. The man has no idea who Jesus is. He finds him later in the temple, and he says to him, Stop sinning. Apparently, the man has been healed, and the first thing he does is he goes and sins. And so Jesus finds him and says, Stop sinning. I've healed you. 
so that you won't sin. And of course, what he does after that is he immediately goes and he tells the religious leaders, I know who healed me. It was Jesus. Tell me not to sin. I'm going to get you in trouble. Jesus tells him not to sin, and the first thing he does is he sins. So what he had done in the north, heal on the Sabbath, forgive sins, he now does in the south. He heals on the Sabbath for the purpose of a holy life and a sinless life. And uh, now they want, they're mad. They want to kill him. And Jesus explains, here's what I'm doing. That's what we're talking about today. And I've only got 10 minutes. That's the introduction. 10 minutes. And the key verse from the passage that Dan read you today is verse 17. It says, this is Jesus' explanation. My father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. My father's always at work. I too am working. One person, as he uh, comments on that, he calls it a riddle. He goes, uh, what, what does it mean? I like to think of it as a tease instead of a riddle. And here is the tease. Here's why it's a tease. Does Jesus think he can compare his working to God the Father? Is that what Jesus is saying? My Father is always working until now. I too am working. And so you're supposed to think, does he think his working is just like God's? His working is just as good as God's. Is that what Jesus thinks? It's a tease. Now, you don't know the answer yet. It's a tease. Is that what he thinks? It's also a tease because you're supposed to ask, how much like God does he think he is? My father's always working till now, and I too, I also am always working. Does he think he's exactly like God to make that kind of comparison? More tease. Does Jesus think that he is taking over the father's work? Right? My father's always working until now, and I also am working. So is Jesus saying, listen, God's been working up till now, and guess what? He's tossed the ball to me, and now I'm carrying it. Possibility. Or does Jesus think that he's doing the same work as the Father along with the Father? Those are the teasing things that I think are supposed to come out of that state. And to find out exactly what Jesus means, the Father's always working, I too am working, you have to read the rest of the passage, right? What does he mean by that? That's kind of cryptic. All the Jews get out of it is he's making himself out to be equal with God. Now, they're right. That's what he was doing. That's all they got out of it. And so he fleshes it out. Um, for the sake of time, let me go through this quickly. Notice with me verses 18 through 20. How much like the deeds of God the Father are the deeds of Jesus Verse 18 through 20, answer that. How much are they alike? Uh, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, or amen, amen, truly, truly. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. So Jesus says, I can only do what I see the Father doing. 
And he says it forcefully. And he says it, in, I, I think he says it five ways. First of all, Jesus says, I can't do anything by myself. The Son can do nothing by himself. I can't do anything by myself. I think what that means, I, I have to go straight to the end of what I think it means. We don't have time. I think that what it means is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are always doing the same thing. Nobody runs off and has their own agenda. Nobody goes off and works on something else. They're working on the same project. And they're working at it wholeheartedly. And they're working at it single-mindedly. And they're working at it together. And uh, the number one thing they're trying to accomplish, that's not even in this passage, but the number one thing they're trying to do is they're going to save the world and they're going to save humanity. And they do it together. The Father comes up with the plan and He comes up with the plan to save you. And He comes up with His choosing and He chooses you. And then in order to save you, He sends His Son into the world. And the Son comes here to save you. And He goes to the cross to save you. And the Holy Spirit then comes into your life and He takes the Word of God and He makes you come alive and He saves you. All three of them are involved in salvation. The salvation of human beings. They're not working apart, they're working together. I think, that's what, I think that's what Jesus is saying. I can't do anything by myself. The father's, on the, the father's on the job. He's working on this. I'm working on this. And you could say the Holy Spirit's working on it too. This implies the perfection of what Jesus does. He's incapable of going off track. He cannot act independently from God the Father. Uh, can you see why nobody else in the world could ever say this? We, we, could, never, we could never say this can't say David Ben can do nothing by himself. Let me tell you, I make mistakes. <laughs> God doesn't make the mistake. Hey, that's me. I blow it. God doesn't blow it. Notice he can only do, he can only do what he sees his father doing. The next one, I can only do what I see the father doing. You think of the ancient world. In the ancient world, most children ended up having the same job as their parents. Jesus' father was a carpenter, so he was a carpenter. Some of you uh, are, have a last name of Miller because at one point your ancestor was a Miller and the son was a Miller. And some of you called Smith because your ancestor was a Smith. And so his son was a Smith. And I don't know what Jones were. Good for nothing, I guess. But you, you did what your father did because you went to work and you went to work with your dad and so that was the job you had. And that's what Jesus is saying. I can only do what I see my father doing because he's saying I, I, I am God's child and I'm the only one and I know everything that he's doing and that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I do what my father does. Uh, he, makes it, he says that even stronger in the next little phrase. Notice, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Wow. The first thing that came to mind is, uh, wait just a second. God, the Father, created the world. Does the Son create the world? Yes, He does. Right? Scripture says that all the time. Jesus is the one who creates the world. Now, by the way, does the Holy Spirit work on creating the world? Right? Right in the very first, right in the very first verse, right? 
second verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form of void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Uh, he he gives an explanation. Why does the Son do everything the Father does? He tells you the next little phrase. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Because of this close relationship with Him, God shows Him everything He does. And finally, Jesus says, the best things are yet to come. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. Jesus gets more specific. And you start to think, well, what things is it that God is doing that the Son also is doing? What things can God do that the Son also does that shows us that Jesus Christ is very God? And he has two things in the rest of the passage. Point number one, Jesus raises dead people. Jesus raises the dead. Look with me at verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Let me point you out two things. First of all, just as, just as God raises the dead, Jesus Christ raises the dead. Just like God does it, Jesus does it. That's a huge statement. Notice why the Son gives life to people. Even so, the, gun, the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. It's based on who He wants to give it. Notice verse 24. Very truly I tell you, or amen, amen. Jesus' way of emphasizing importance. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, or amen, amen again, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Notice where he says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Um, he's either talking about real dead people, or he's talking about metaphorically dead. In other words, spiritually dead. It's hard to know which one he's talking about. I myself think he's talking about spiritually dead people. That those who are spiritually dead now hear the voice of Jesus and they become spiritually alive, spiritually alive to God. I think that's what he's saying. John Piper disagrees with me. You know, I like John Piper stuff. He's 99% he's right. I'm 100% right. Look, look, at one more, look at one more verse and then I just want to talk about it for a little bit. Notice verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when... All who are in their graves will hear his voice, that's the voice of Jesus, and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Um, let, let me uh, just illustrate it a couple of ways. Last, last week, um, Bob, Bob Owens was on life support in um, ICU in the hospital. And um, they called me early in the morning. Um, Don Eastman was there. 
And Don was there with the family, and Don called me and said, uh, they're going to pull him off life support at you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock. Can you come in? I said, yeah, I'll be there. And uh, then he called me and said, it's, it's going really fast. They're going to pull him off life support at 8.30. So I said, I'll be there. So I, I went there, the family was there, and um, I went in, and I read some scripture, and I said a word of prayer, and Bob was non-responsive, and I think Bob was probably already gone. The heart machine was still pumping the blood, and the breathing machine was still breathing, but there was nothing happening, and uh, so I, I don't think... Bob heard what I said, because dead people don't hear. And so I read the scriptures, and we prayed, and the nurse came in and said, are you done? And then they turn off the heart machine, and they turned off the breathing machine. They leave you for a few minutes, and then they're ready to move on, right? As fast as you get out of there, they want you out of there. they got somebody else to bring in. But they're, they're nice about it. But I don't think Bob could hear me. That's just what I think. Dead people don't hear you. That's what's amazing about this, because there will be a time when the voice of Jesus will raise every single dead person, the voice of Jesus. They'll hear him, and they'll be resurrected. That's astounding. Now, this is because Jesus is very God. Otherwise, Jesus can't raise the dead. Not all of them. That's the power of God. I remember I've seen uh, images of uh, some of the catacombs in Paris. And there are places underneath Paris that just have huge piles of bone. Paris has been a large city for a long time. And so there are places underneath the city where you just have piles of bones, 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 you know, just piles of them. And there will be a time when the voice of Jesus will be heard and all of those bones are going to come up out of the grave and there'll be people again. So every single person who has ever lived will be resurrected. There will be a time when you will meet Adolf Hitler because Jesus Christ will raise him from the dead. And Joseph Stalin will be coming out of the dead because Jesus will raise him. Mary, the mother of Jesus, will be resurrected by Jesus Christ. Solomon will be resurrected by Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, Joan of Arc, Alexander the Great and Alexander Graham Bell, John A. MacDonald, and one day Justin Trudeau and Kathleen Wynne will be resurrected by Jesus Christ. My grandparents and your grandparents will be resurrected by Jesus Christ. They will all be resurrected by Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ lets no one go out of existence. There is no such loss for the righteous and there is no such hope for the wicked, Jesus raises them all. And so when Jesus says, my Father is always working, and I too am working, what he means is the incredible, miraculous things that God does are the same incredible, miraculous things that I do, because I am very God. One other thing. And let me show you this quickly. One other way in which Jesus does the very same things that God does, Jesus is the judge. Notice verse 22. 
Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. By the way, those are huge. Those are huge statements. Um, Notice Jesus judges all. Notice the reason why he does this is so that Jesus Christ will get all the same honor that God the Father gets. And if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. If you don't honor Jesus, you don't honor God. Those are powerful statements. Notice verse 27. God has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Why does Jesus get to judge? Because he is the one human being that's done it right. He is the Son of Man. So he gets to judge all men. And finally, verse 29 and 30. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I, can't, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. But my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus will judge all people. Well, what does that mean for you and I? Well, here's the conclusion, and this comes from the Apostle Paul, written by Luke in Acts. Apostle Paul, written by Luke. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Um, Your relationship to Jesus Christ determines your future. And Jesus Christ determines your future. So therefore, honor him, believe in him, trust him, turn to him, repent of your sins today so that you can be forgiven. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for mercy and grace and forgiveness of sins, not based on our righteousness or what we deserve, based on your love and grace showered on us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for each one of us today, help us to trust Jesus, to believe him, follow him, and honor him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.